Well, I want to do something different this morning. I want to take some time, um, at least this Sunday, and sort of shift away from 1 John. We'll come back to our study through 1 John. But I want you to take your Bible and, and go to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, I, want to, I want to speak from this subject this morning, uh, life's greatest question. Now, let me just simply say this. Um, we will come back to 1 John, but what I want to do this morning is really talk to you about an initiative that we're going to be giving ourselves over to as a congregation over the next several months uh, that we've simply been referring to as a strategic refocus. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks back, uh, but going all the way back really to the end of 2021 uh, in conversations with our deacon body, uh, ending the year uh, debt-free as a congregation, we just really sense that we're just in a really prime opportunity to really seek the direction of the Lord uh, as far as future ministry. Um, you know, the last two years have been extremely challenging for churches. That comes as no surprise to any of you. It's been a challenge for us. It's been a challenge across our country, really all across the world. Uh, the Barna Research Group reported in 2020 that a full one-third of churchgoers stopped attending in person or even online. Uh, after the nationwide shutdowns. And um, even now, two years later, there still are some churches that are struggling. In, in my research, I was just doing just some Google searches on some statistics, but I came across an article that was published by an ABC News affiliate out of Raleigh with some specific, North Carolina-specific data. But the headline of this article said that church attendance remains low since pandemic began, and this was an article dated uh, back in December of this past year. But the article said that the ABC data team analyzed mobility data across the United States and found in many places that Americans are not attending in-person church services in as large a number as they were prior to the pandemic. In North Carolina, the team found 90% of counties had fewer people attending church in October of 2021 than in January of 2021. Physical attendance is down an average of 20% across the state. Attendance was lower in metro areas. Counties with fewer than 10,000 residents reported a very small change in attendance. So really where you have the urban areas, you, you tend to see this kind of trend where attendance numbers have been lower and lower. Now, I say all that to simply say God has blessed us at Green Street. And he's worthy of our worship and praise. And, and though it's been a challenge, we've experienced growth and some of the change that goes along with that. And that's certainly not always an easy thing. But when I think about where we've been and where we currently are, let me say I am absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude with what the Lord's done in our fellowship and, and just the, the privilege it is to be able to serve as uh, your pastor. And you know, we're not the same church that we were going into the pandemic. And I think that's true for all of us as individuals. I think the last couple of years, uh, we've, we've grown a lot. Our faith has grown a lot. And often that's what furnaces do. Furnaces refine 
your faith. And I really believe that the church has been refined. And, and you know, I think about all of those who've joined our fellowship. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a, a stack of folks that we're presenting in the second service today. Uh, we've got at least a dozen or so that we're baptizing next Sunday. And so God has been so very faithful. And again, you think about your continued faithfulness to give, and, and this is even without passing offering plates, which is something I would like to get back to, <laughs> just for the record's sake. <laughs> but even without passing offering plates, your continued faithfulness to give above and beyond our, our, our weekly budget needs, we were able to end 2021 debt-free as a congregation. And so all of that's just brought us to this opportunity to really just seek the Lord, to pray, to plan, uh, to pursue what we believe that the Lord has in store for our future as a church. Now, I'll come back to this before I close this morning, but I want to I go to this passage of Scripture here in Matthew chapter 16. It was said of Socrates, the famous Greek philosopher, that he was considered to be wise not so much because he knew all the right answers, but because he knew how to ask the right questions. And the whole Socratic method of argument is largely based upon asking questions that really are designed to provoke thought. And of all the questions that could ever be asked, there's one question that towers above all questions, and it's a question that we find asked right here in our text this morning. And the question is this, who is Jesus Christ? You think about ministry and you think about the local church and what God has called us to do, the mission that we're a part of as the church, it all has to do with this question, doesn't it? Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, what are we going to do with the person of Jesus Christ? Uh, how might you answer that person or, or that question personally? Uh, how might the average person in our city go about answering this question, who is Jesus Christ? Well, notice with me verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. The Bible says that when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are people saying about me? Uh, what have you heard? What, have, what are people saying? Who do they say that I am? In verse 14, they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you were Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we'll stop reading there. But life's greatest question, it's, it's asked here in this passage. And really, this passage in Matthew 16 is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. 
Now, I remember learning this uh, early on in, in seminary, but there really is a sound principle uh, that a lot of old Bible scholars used to talk about called the, the law of first mention, which basically says anytime that something is first mentioned in Scripture, uh, there is a fundamental truth that's laid down. The first mention of something is important for the essential picture as that truth is built upon throughout the pages of Scripture. So if you applied this first use of the word church, we can notice that there's a basic truth being laid down here in this passage. The truth is this. The church is built upon the bedrock confession that Jesus is the Christ. Why is it that the church exists to begin with? Is the church just here for the fun of it? Uh, does the church exist uh, for a variety of reasons that you and I attach to the church? No, the church is here to testify to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And that's the mission that the church has been given. And so the Bible says in Acts chapter 20 that the church has been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, which makes the church the most important institution in human history. Now, a lot of people say, well, the church, uh, is, it's not that important. Well, anything that Jesus bought with his own blood tells me that it's very, very important. And so the church is essential. And it's essential that the local church provide a biblically sound, healthy context for believers to grow in their faith. Now, in this passage, there's a few things that I want to draw your attention to, the first of which is a question that's asked. So if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. I don't have it on the screen this morning, but you can jot this maybe in the margin of your Bible or on a piece of paper. But there's a question that is asked here in the text. By the time you get to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, it had been a very busy season of ministry for Jesus and the disciples. Uh, Jesus knew that the end of his earthly ministry was quickly approaching. He had begun facing confrontation with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, they were convinced that he was a threat to their system, and so they become determined to do whatever it takes to get rid of him. So Jesus withdrew from ministering to the crowds here for a season, and he goes with his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was roughly 100 miles or so away from the city of Jerusalem to the north. It was located in the northernmost territory of Israel, uh, some 20, 25 miles due north of the Sea of Galilee. And so Caesarea Philippi was in a lush area that was predominantly uh, uh, inhabited by Gentiles. It stood at the base of Mount Hermon, and uh, it had been a real important center for pagan worship. The Greek god Pan had a shrine there. Uh, it was so named Caesarea Philippi after Rome's Caesar, Herod the Great had uh, built a shrine there that was devoted to Caesar in appreciation to Caesar for giving him the city. And so really it was a hotbed of idolatry. Now, interestingly enough, there was a cave, a massive cave located there in Caesarea Philippi that 
those who lived in that area, the Gentiles that worshipped false gods, literally believed that this cave was the gateway to the underworld. Uh, in the worship of Pan, the worship of Baal, the worship of the fertility gods that was so characteristic of, of the culture of that particular region, uh, they believed that the fertility gods were in the heart of the earth during the winter and during the spring season when the rains would come. Uh, the fertility gods would come out of this particular cave and there would be a very prosperous growing season, planting season. And the worship practices associated with that were immoral and debauchery was rampant. It's here in this interesting area that Jesus takes his disciples, and I find it interesting that it's in this hotbed of idolatry, that this confession is made, this question is asked, who do people say that I am? There at the very gateway to hell itself, in the eyes of that culture, Jesus wants people to answer this most important question. Who do people say that I am? The question was very realistic. Uh, Jesus was well aware of the fact that there were divergent views surrounding his identity. There were crowds of people who gathered to be around him throughout his ministry, some of whom were interested, others who were intrigued, some of whom were incensed, but only a few were truly informed. By the way, isn't that really kind of the way it is today? There are a lot of people who are interested in who Jesus is, maybe intrigued by Jesus, others incensed by the claims of Jesus, but only a few are truly informed and in the know as to who Jesus Christ truly is. And so Jesus asks this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's not asking this question out of a sense of his own uh, insecurity. He's the perfect Son of God, God incarnate. He's not asking this question because he's so preoccupied with what people think. No, he's asking this question because really he's leading his disciples to understand what the most important question in life ultimately is. And it's centered around this figure, the Son of Man. So the question is a relevant question. Who is Jesus Christ? You know, before you can understand the purpose of the church, you need to know the person of Jesus Christ. Because the church makes no sense apart from Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that the church is irrelevant to a lot of people due to the fact they don't know who Jesus Christ really is. It may be that they've given him lip service. It could be that they've sort of associated in a nominal way with Christianity and with the church but they most certainly have not bowed to him out of the realization of his lordship and what that means for their lives. So depending upon who you ask, you'll hear a variety of answers to this question. Well, notice in verse 14 how the disciples answer. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Uh, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or even one of the other prophets. To say that he's John the Baptist is to say that he's the forerunner of a coming Savior, but he's not that Savior. Or to say that he is Elijah, this is to say that he's indeed a prophet, but nothing more. To say that he's Jeremiah, uh, that's to say that he's willing to suffer, 
He's willing to suffer for the cause of God in the world, but his suffering is not vicarious, and certainly his suffering is not different from any other man for that matter. You know, most people don't have a hard time acknowledging Jesus as a good teacher or a religious figure as long as he is spoken of strictly in human terms. For the most part, people have no problem uh, talking about his accomplishments and life. Someone to be admired? Well, sure, society says. But someone to be worshipped? Well, that's a different issue altogether. And some would say, well, it's an irrelevant question. Who is Jesus? Because Jesus lived 20 centuries ago. And we're now living in the 21st century world, and we've got far more important things to consider, things like the weather and things like politics and keeping up with fads and fashions. But notice the question that Jesus raises here is not this question, who do people say that the Son of Man was? The question is this, who do people say that the Son of Man is? See, the thing is, you could ask the question, who was Julius Caesar? Who was Augustine? Uh, who was George Washington, Adams, Jefferson, historical figures? But the question here is one of present urgency. Who is the Son of Man? Which means this is the most relevant question that anyone could ever grapple with in life. One person has expressed it this way, everyone else is a has-been, but Jesus is. He is the I am. He is God incarnate. He is the one with whom every human being has to deal. He is the one before whom every knee will one day bow. And so this is a relevant, urgent question. I once heard Alistair Begg say <clears throat> that man's greatest need is to know what his greatest need is. And man's greatest problem is that he does not know what his greatest need truly is. Now here's the thing, we're a part of the church, we understand the gospel, we've been given a mission to take the gospel, declare the gospel to the whole wide world, but let's just put ourselves in, in, on the mission field for just a second. Think about our, our city, think about the work that God's called us to do to take this issue, who is Jesus Christ, and tell High Point, and tell the world, well, we know who he is. And your greatest need is to know who he is and to submit your life to him as your Lord, to receive him as your Savior. That's their greatest need, but they don't know that that's their greatest need. So they think their greatest need is perhaps financial or their greatest need, it's, it's the issues that they're grappling with right now. So you see, the church has to have some type of supernatural power behind it, working through it as we declare this gospel message because people don't know what their greatest need is, and yet that's the very thing that we're to address as the church. <laughs> and so most people say, well, that's why the church is irrelevant. They view that it's irrelevant because they don't understand what their greatest need is. And isn't that just like the enemy to want to blind people to the greatest need that they have and try to dismiss the church as being irrelevant when in reality it's most relevant? There's nothing more relevant than this question, who is Jesus Christ? Nothing more relevant 
than the church of Jesus Christ committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. So that's the question that's asked. Now notice the second thing here, and that's the confession that's made. The question in verse 13 is general. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? But you get down to verse 15, and Jesus asks a more direct, specific question of his disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? That is, as my disciples, those who followed me up close and personal, those of you who've witnessed my miracles, who've witnessed my power being demonstrated, who do you say that I am? And the you there is second person plural, which means it's intentionally meant to distinguish the group of disciples from the rest of the world. You might could say it this way, who do y'all, <laughs> if you were to use our vernacular from this, who do y'all say that I am? Because who y'all say I am, this is very different than the rest of the world and what the rest of the world says about me. You know, it's very easy to voice the opinion of others. It may be trendy to follow theories and ideas espoused by the world, but it's another thing altogether when Jesus Christ confronts you personally with this question, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Now, not, not the preacher, not my Sunday school teacher, uh, not my neighbor, not my mom, not my dad, not my spouse, but me. This is a question that demands I give a very specific, I'm being held accountable as far as an answer to this question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, it's Peter who speaks up. That shouldn't surprise us because Peter was none too shy, but listen to Peter, here's what he says. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Everybody else says, well, he's a good teacher. He's a religious leader. He's a prophet. But Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than an itinerant preacher. You are the Christ. The word means Messiah, anointed one. You're the one that the prophets told us would step onto the scene. You're God-made man. You're the hope of the world. This confession is a recognition that Jesus is omnipotent deity wrapped up in perfect humanity. Uh, Peter confesses Jesus to be the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hopes. He's the one who was told it would come. This is David's son who's come to rule the nations from David's throne. And yet there was so much more that these disciples would learn about who Jesus is and what Jesus would come to do. It wouldn't be long from this point. They would be confused because the one that they'd come to place all of their trust and all of their hopes and uh, to follow and to commit their life to, he'd be taken, he would be beaten, he would be crucified, nailed to a cross, he would suffer, he would die. And they had a hard time seeing how all of that was really in the plan of God. But that's how it had to happen because he first had to come and suffer for sins. He had to come and make an atonement for sins and open up a way of access so that sinful man could be reconciled to a holy God. But you see, he's going to come again and he's going to appear again in glory and history is moving toward this ultimate destiny 
And we're coming closer to that moment, minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour. We're closer now to the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ than we were yesterday. And it's easy for us sometimes to get so caught up in the rat race of life and the monotony of life and the everyday details that we've got to give ourselves to that we often lose sight of what history, the climactic moment that human history is barreling towards. And that's this encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So there's a question that's asked here, and it's a very important question. There's a confession that's made, and it's this confession which distinguishes those who truly know God apart from those who don't. And then notice third, that there's some insight here that's revealed. Verse 17, Jesus answers Peter and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that means Peter didn't stumble upon this knowledge of who Jesus is all by himself. This is not something that Peter is coming up with on his own accord. This confession was not a matter of his intellect or his careful analysis of the situation. No, Jesus says, you're blessed. The flesh and blood has not revealed to you the truth of who I am, but my Father who is in heaven, he is the one who's revealed to you the truth of who I am. The truth of Christ, this is not something that comes by human perception, but by divine revelation. It is nothing short of a miracle when the eyes of a person are opened up to the glorious reality of who Jesus Christ is, and in humble repentance, they confess their sin and place their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. That is nothing short of a miracle. And yet, that's the very thing that God has told the church to be about. That's the very thing that we want to see happen. Not just in this context on a Sunday morning when the church gathers, but the real work of the church is when the church scatters. And as we engage people at the level of this question, who do you think Jesus Christ is? And then we're able to share the message of the gospel Sure, there'll be those who don't want to hear. Sure, there'll be those who reject. But folks, let me tell you something. There will be those who are eager to hear. There will be those who respond to the invitation. There will be those whose eyes and minds have been opened up to the beautiful reality of who the Son of God is. And you'll get to witness a miracle take place as you lead a person to faith in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you confess Jesus Christ is Lord, that's by the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And no one can be a part of the church apart from confessing their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you think about who the church is. It's a body of believers who are absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. And a church that recognizes this, a church that's gripped by this reality, will be a church that takes seriously its mission. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. How is it that people will ever call upon him 
of whom they've not heard. They've not believed on him. Paul outlines all of this in Romans chapter 10. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And it's this word that's been committed to us as the followers of Jesus. And so, listen, all of this ought to remind us that this business with which we're engaged as the church is supernatural business. We can't rely on clever marketing techniques to reach people for Jesus. We can't rely upon pragmatic means to reach people for Jesus. And there are a lot of helpful tools, and I'm, I'm for any kind of helpful tool. But let me tell you, ultimately, we've been given supernatural business that ought to preoccupy our lives. This is supernatural business, being a church for the city, a church committed to make disciples. If it's supernatural business, that means I need supernatural power. But you know, the good news of Pentecost is that's exactly what the church has been supplied with, supernatural power. So there's this question that's asked here in the text. There's a confession that's made, insight that's revealed, but then notice one final thing, and that's a promise that's given. What's the promise? Well, Jesus says, I tell you, you were Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This was not the first time that Jesus called Simon by that Aramaic name, Cephas, translated in Greek as Petros or Peter. You, you, you lay a harmony of the gospels side by side, and you'll see from John 1.42 that in their initial encounter, Jesus so names Peter. He's Simon, son of John, but Jesus gives him this name, Peter. And the first time that he refers to him as Peter, it's in John 1.42, early on in his ministry as he's calling his disciples to himself. Now, here in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is stating it as a present fact. In John 1.42, Jesus states this detail in the future tense. He says, you shall be called Peter. But here in Matthew 16, it's present tense. It's present fact. You are Peter. And I like what Dr. Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says, I'm convinced that it was here in this moment at Caesarea Philippi that Simon fulfilled the sole requirement to become what he was meant to be. Jesus had given him a new name, and that name was contingent upon his faith in who Jesus truly is. And that same requirement continues to be the foundation stone of the Christian faith. It's this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> Listen, God has a new name reserved for the one that confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, you've been given a new name You've been given a brand new identity in Jesus Christ. Old things have passed away and all things. Have, by the way, that's what our world is so desperately longing for. They want some sense of meaning, some sense of identity. And you've got all kinds of cultural movements wrapped up in identity. And it's a dead-end street. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There's only one road that leads to life, and it's the road that leads by way of the cross. Revelation 1.17 says that you've been given a new name if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. 
So in response to his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus is making a promise here to Peter as well as the apostles, and the promise is that he will build his church. And that is one of the most important statements in the whole Bible about the church. Now, some people have interpreted this to mean that the church is built upon Peter. And Roman Catholicism, you know, uses this as a proof text to try to establish the the papacy. But that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. He's using a play on words that you don't so much see in the English language, but you see in the Greek text. Because Jesus refers to Peter as Petros, and Petros means stone, but he promises that he will build his church on the Petra, which means massive rock. So here's the idea. Peter is a small stone, But the massive rock upon which Jesus will build his church, it's this bedrock confession that he is the Christ. And yet there's more going on here, this word Petra, on this rock I will build my church. It was a word used in classical Greek to refer to a collection of stones fused together to form a much larger rock. What would we call this? Uh, my geology, the days of geology are slipping. I think it's uh, conglomerate, if I'm not mistaken, where you've got conglomerate rock formations that it's just through pressure and there's a fusion that's take place of various minerals and such that you have a conglomerate rock. That's kind of the idea here. As Petros, Peter would be one stone in a spiritual house that's built upon the Petra of multiple stones Petra meant many stones joined together to form a massive rock that is larger and more significant than any one stone could be all by itself. Now think about that. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is, isn't it? In fact, Peter would say this later on when he wrote 1 Peter 2, 5. He said, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the point is, the church is founded upon Jesus Christ, whom Peter and the apostles preached as being crucified, buried, and raised to life again. And Jesus says, I will build my church. That's a promise. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement of intent. And then here's the expectation that we can have as his, as his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, you go back to where they were in Caesarea Philippi. I kind of have in my my mind's eye, just use your sanctified imagination for just a moment. Maybe they're standing there in the shadow of that massive hillside where that deep cavernous cave went into the underbelly of the earth. And you had Gentiles coming and going who were blind to their true need, blinded, steeped in idolatrous worship practices, bowing the knee to false gods and idols, and in the midst of that darkness, here you have this teeny tiny band of followers who 
who say, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And to that teeny tiny group, Jesus says, that's exactly right. Let me tell you something. On this massive rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't be discouraged when you see an ocean of lostness. Don't be discouraged when you experience hostility for the precious name of Jesus Christ. Don't be discouraged when you see trends in culture that move in an anti-biblical direction. Don't be discouraged by that. Know that that's all the world knows, but you know something different. You know the truth as the people of God. Your eyes have been opened. You know who Jesus is, and you're part of a successful mission that will not fail because the Lord himself has said so. And Jesus says, in light of that, get with it. He's using the language of the, of, 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 it's, it's offensive warfare language here. He's not describing a church that's on the defense. Did you watch the Houston Villanova game last night? Some of you did. Here's a good illustration of that. Those two teams were absolutely known by their defense. It's a low-scoring game. I think it was only in the 40s, both teams. Both teams known for their defense. See, when you're defense, 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 you're trying to keep the other team from scoring points. But Jesus is saying the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He's describing his church as being on offense. We're storming the gates. We're going to the center of culture. We're going to the hotbed of idolatry. We're going into the hotbed places where ideas are perpetuated that are anti-God in nature. And Jesus says, that's, right, that's where I want you to go and be my witnesses. I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You say, preacher, it don't necessarily feel that way especially when you consider the statistics that 6,000 churches close their doors every year. 3,500 Americans leave the church every day. Only one pastor out of 10 retires while still in ministry. 74% of Americans claim to be Christian, yet less than 20% regularly attend church. Only 15% of churches are growing numerically, and of those that are growing numerically, only 2% are effectively winning people to Jesus Christ. And so many of those churches that are growing numerically, it's transfer growth and people from other churches. Not that you, we've experienced that. But we wanna see kingdom growth, don't we? People who are far from God, who don't know Jesus, coming to know Jesus. And so that's why I really believe that a strategic refocus is in order for this time in the life of our congregation. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now here's the thing. That doesn't mean that we sort of sit back on our laurels and we say, all right, Jesus, you said you'd build the church. We're just gonna sit here on our pew and wait for you to do it. No, no. Because he's called us to active participation in this mission of his. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who builds his church, but he's told us what to do. He's given us resources. He's given us spiritual power. You know, everything that we need to do what the King of Kings has called and commanded us to do, he has supplied us with. 
We just need to have the faith and recognition of what we've already been given and then use it, appropriate it in faith and in obedience. Jesus said, I will build my church. And against all odds, he's promised that his church will prevail. So let me just kind of just close with just a little bit of information just to let you know what we're talking about here when I use this word or this phrase, strategic refocus. Again, over the past few months, our staff, our lay leadership, our deacons, we've been talking about the value of strategic planning uh, as a congregation, and we've been working through just this simple process that will take the better part of this year. It's not something that will happen overnight, not something that will happen over the course of a few weeks, but something that we intentionally want to give ourselves to very carefully over the next several months. And so think about focus. Uh, Focus is a very important thing. And without proper focus, you'll find yourself all over the map with no clear sense of direction. And that's devastating when it comes to carrying out a mission. So refocus, this is zeroing back in on something that is important. And and that's what we want to be about. What is the focus for the local church? Well, we know that that's the Great Commission. That's the, that's the idea. That's the mission. We, we don't get to debate that. That's something that Jesus himself has handed down to not just our church, but the church. And so we want to focus on this mission of bringing people to Jesus and making disciples. And so I'll, I'll tell you what this will involve. I've got a group of folks who've been working with me, um, just some committed, uh, precious, precious folks in our church whom I'm so very grateful for. Uh, Miss Edie Williams has been helping me uh, the last couple of months, and uh, Edie has done this kind of thing with churches and organizations with her, her uh, vocation, and so we're very grateful for her. And then also Jeannie Oase, uh, who is on our staff and a long-term, uh, long-time member of our faith family here, uh, but also uh, Tom Futrell, who is our chairman of deacons, at least for the next few months, Brother Tom. Um, he's done such a wonderful job this last year serving as our deacon chairman. I'm very grateful for him. And then Miss Wanda Dellinger uh, is also helping uh, in this initiative. And so, honestly, what we're trying to do is just be organized. And over the next three months or so, we want to compile some data. And that means that we're going to ask you some very specific uh, ministry-related questions. Um, many of these will be spiritual in nature. I want to know exactly where you are in terms of your own personal walk with the Lord, uh, where you feel that your family is uh, in terms of your walk with the Lord. I want to know what really excites you when you think about a church that is winning people to Jesus Christ and equipping people in Jesus Christ. You think about some of our greatest needs. We want to hear from our congregation. And so the way that we'll do that, we'll have a series of questions that we'll, we'll ask. We'll probably try to do this through our Sunday school classes and our life groups. Uh, we'll have a digital form available via our website that you can submit. And so once we have all of our data compiled, uh, we'll report back to you our findings, and then we'll implement an action plan that will take us well into the next year. Now, before COVID, we had determined just some key goals that we really wanted to just keep the main thing the main thing what were those key goals well you kind of see them every week when you come into the worship center 
on these banners here on our wall. We, we rolled that out in late 2019, and man, you know what? The world just got turned upside down in 2020. And so what are our goals? Well, we want to worship together. We want to see every person plugged into a small group and grow in a group. We want you to be equipped to be able to share your faith and so multiply. And that's where impact for the kingdom's sake is really made is where the church scattered from week to week, wherever our jobs may take us or your neighborhood or wherever. And then ultimately, we want to be about the mission of reaching the nations for Jesus. It's hard to believe that it's been a couple of years since we've been able to send out any uh, mission teams with the travel restrictions and the shutdowns and all of that, but we're wanting to get back to that, and we've got a plan to do that, and so um, you're going to be so very important and have such an important role to play as we give ourselves to that. Now, I do want to mention this also just by way of uh, update. Over the last year or so, uh, you know, we've been without a discipleship pastor. And we've had a search committee who has been uh, meeting, I guess, the last nine months or so and uh, has received a variety of, 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 of resumes from all across the country. And so in the next couple of weeks, you'll hear a report from the chairman of that committee, uh, Mr. Ed Ellis, who's done such a tremendous job and leading that work, uh, and they are in the interview phase. And so I want to tell you that just to simply say, be praying, uh, because this is a real key component uh, for our staff, and will be so very important, uh, especially in the days ahead. And so uh, this is an exciting time. It really is. It's a challenging time, but it's an exciting time for the church. And we've got work to do, don't we? Uh, next Sunday, uh, you'll hear some information uh, Ms. Wanda Dellinger has compiled. Uh, Russ Reeves, who works with our state convention, has given us some very important information about just our local area here within just a three-mile radius of our church and what the demographic is of our local community. It's important that we know who our local community is, what the demographics are of our city, if we're to be truly a church for the city. Amen? Well, would you stand with me for prayer this morning? I want, us to, I want us to close out in this fashion. Since we're the church on the move, and Jesus has committed to us the gospel, now think about it. This week, you'll encounter someone that you'll be able to share your faith with, whether that be at work or whether that be in passing. And maybe you encounter or engage that person by asking this question, you know, who, who, do you, who do you suppose Jesus Christ is? Who do you think he is? What would you say about him? And you know, that's really the most important question that you could ask a person. And it may just give you an opportunity to share the wonderful news of the gospel with that man or that woman or whomever it may be. Lord, thank you for your church and thank you for the promise that you're building your church. And God, the fact that we get to be a part of what you're doing, we know, Lord, that you're coming. But you've left us here, Lord, for a very specific task. And it's an overwhelming task. But Lord, it's one that we will meet in the energy, the strength, and the power that you supply. Give us courage, boldness, Fill our hearts with the love of God 
for Jesus' sake. Amen.